Time for swordplay. Alex, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, Disney has offered to pay interstate travel expenses for employees seeking an abortion. Yeah, employees were later uh, disappointed to find out that compensation was only coming in the form of Disney World food vouchers. So... But you know that's actually that's pretty valuable. Thirty dollar PB and J's, man, that adds up. Yeah, that adds up. I guess pay for a whole meal. By the way, that's a real story. I came from Reuters, carried that news story. So, isn't that crazy? Disney eating its young. Who's yeah? Who's their who's their target audience? Aren't they supposed to be like selling? I, th- I think I did, you know it's hard to tell these days <laughs> just with the changing in the content. But I think yeah, it's supposed to be like children, you know, uh, yeah. young children. Entertainment for children, yeah. If they exist to provide content for uh, for families, especially children, and um, and then they use their profits to kill children. Yeah, that's where it's going. That's <laughs> that's the insanity of rebellion and unbelief on on stunningly brilliant display. It really is a uh, display of of the parasitic nature of evil, right? It's like it eats itself. Like it is self-destructive. It's not sustainable for that reason. The snake continuing to eat its own tail. What did you say earlier? Were you saying it's like, uh, it's like Apple paying its employees to buy Android phones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tesla agreeing to uh, pay their employees gas money. I don't know. <laughs> You just, you know, you try to start thinking of just absurd examples of, you know, what it would be like. And, um, you know, the the, the most uh, obtuse one that I could think of was Depends Adult Diapers now paying their employees to murder the elderly. I mean, that would, (laughs) that's as I think, that's... uh, as close as you can get, I think. But sounds um, like uh, sounds like something that should be out of the Babylon Bee. Yeah, yeah. I guess I should submit that or something um, for their consideration. They should. Babylon B should uh, pay us to write some headlines for them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is all facetious and, and doesn't nearly arise to the level of what Disney is doing. Well, I mean, I guess it depends, right? Depends. No, anyway. All right. <laughs> We're not that funny. I see. I see. It was a. Uh, it was a. Uh, a time joke. I had to wait for the timer to go off, and then it went off in my mind a few seconds later. <laughs> well, in case you can't tell, uh, devoted listener, this is an after-hours episode of the podcast where we talk about uh, anything and everything that comes into our minds. That's right. After-hours number six. Sounds I right. Mean, do we have anything left to talk about? Are we really that interesting, Nick? It's it's <laughs> it's been so long since we've we've done anything, and then partly, I mean, we're, we've been super busy, right? If uh, uh, either you've been out of pocket, I've been out of pocket. Um, we're just we're busy guys doing uh, ministry or family related things, and um, uh, so I, I mean, I guess that'd be a good place to start. Is just kind of catch up like what we've been doing here lately yeah that's true it has been a busy summer um you know we mentioned babylon b i just really man i really like some of their headlines though i just wanted to share one of these uh, that i just found here's a babylon b headline says netflix loses 1 million subscribers right that's true leaving 10 million people wondering why their netflix login doesn't work anymore (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's true that's true i use my brother-in-law's login <laughs> uh. the b so what have we been up to this summer man it's been it's been busy you know not recording a whole lot of podcasts that's for sure mm-hmm. so we are slowly making our way through the summer of uh solomon and uh what is our next one supposed to be again Psalms of Solomon. Psalms of Solomon. From okay, the yeah, uh, yeah. the old Septuagint. That's right. So Psalms of Solomon are next. So getting getting through the rest of those Solomonic works, or so-called Solomonic works. Either way. Well, Nick, uh, 
Do you have any thoughts? I know we opened up with the uh, the Disney supporting abortion uh, yeah. article, which is re, you know just obviously ridiculous. But uh, do you have any reflective thoughts upon the reversal, the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts, my friend. Um, what are your What are your takeaways from that? Well, first of all, um, I didn't think it would ever happen. I mean, <laughs> not in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, oh, we have little faith, right? <laughs> uh, the Lord, the Lord has been merciful um, for for nearly fifty years. Uh, that was um, that was the decision, right? The law of the land, as they say, even though you don't legislate from the bench, not supposed to anyway, but. Um, and I, for, for years, um, especially in Merced, uh, Merced had a very active, uh, pro-life base there. Every January we'd gather downtown in the cold, uh, to mark the anniversary for the Roe versus Wade decision. Um, I've been involved with the pro-life movement since I was a kid. There's pictures of me holding signs outside of an abortion clinic in Fresno, um, that uh, you know, my mom was active in it, and she would take us down there, and and we would stand and protest. And so, number one, let's let's start with the uh, the pastoral uh, aspect of this. Um, I do believe that uh, abortion is a grievous evil, a grievous sin, but I don't believe it's unforgivable. If if uh, there is a a woman who uh, in in uh, the past, you were party to an abortion. You had an abortion. I would call you to faith in Christ and to repentance uh, for that. Uh, if you are a Christian woman and, and you have that in your past, I would uh, I would lament with you uh, over uh, that uh, that unborn child. That's uh, that's a, an awful thing. And um, uh, those who are in Christ, I believe we know just what a, a grievous thing that is for an innocent child to be uh, systematically killed, murdered uh, in the womb. That's It's a grievous thing. But again, there is forgiveness, there is wholeness and healing in Christ. But as I thought about it, um, the abortion industry in America has left a rather wide wake of destruction because you think about uh, so at the at the center of course is that baby that is um, that is murdered uh, that is killed in in the womb, but then you do have the uh, the, the 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 woman who uh, was carrying that child. Uh, abortion brings with it uh, emotional scarring, physical scarring. Um, in some cases, it's even resulted in the death of the woman. Uh, spiritual scarring. Uh, so. Uh, that's that's significant, but then what's often overlooked is the the man uh, who uh, was uh, a part of this, either uh, wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, there have been men who have pressured women into getting an abortion, but then there are the men that I think about who maybe maybe you know you you wanted the child and it was not your decision to make. That decision was taken from you. I listened to a, a man when we were in Merced. He came to one of the anniversary. Uh, uh, anniversaries there, and he shared how he there was there was trauma from uh, when when uh, the woman that he was with when she got an abortion, and uh, it brought with it its own trauma and its own pain. And then I expand that outward, and and any any siblings that might have been uh, in the picture at the time or in the at, in the picture in the future, they're bereaved of that uh, that sibling. They're, they're, it's no longer uh, no longer there. Um, the would-be grandparents, uh, her parents and his parents, uh, they they don't get uh, to experience the joy that uh, a child brings, or they they get to be grandparents. Um, I think about the medical professionals, the the doctors and nurses who are involved in this, and and that brings with it its own damage and scarring. I mean, there are stories about uh, nurses and doctors who've come out of that, and they share what uh, a grievous thing it is. There is just a wide wake here of grief and sorrow and pain and suffering that has come about in the wake of Roe versus Wade. And so I think the overturning of that decision, number one, is the right decision. What's often overlooked these days is that uh, RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she in the past acknowledged that uh, uh, Roe versus Wade shouldn't have, it shouldn't have happened. 
and so, I mean, she wasn't sitting on the bench when this took place. She is now uh, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But even she recognized uh, that uh, it shouldn't be, <clears throat> it shouldn't have been the decision. And then there's, um, well, the thing about the overturning of Roe versus Wade with the Dobbs decision it is not the end of abortion in America. I think it's a step in the right direction. Now it's kicked back to the states. The states at an individual level will have to decide. And there's already legislation in certain states, you know, heartbeat laws and things like that that are moving through uh, the legislative process. Unfortunately, I think that in certain states, the state we currently reside in in California, Alex, probably where you're at in Minnesota, definitely New York, these are going to become sanctuary states, I think. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I can see a scenario where legislation comes down in these certain states where it's not just abortion being legal up to nine months, but even after uh, a baby survives abortion. It's already taking place in certain cities in our country, like Chicago, where former President Barack Hussein Obama came from. He was involved in the legislation for post-birth uh well, letting the child die, put it in a, in a room and let it die if it survives an abortion. This is a grievous, monstrous evil, right? I think we'll see legislation along those lines as well come about in certain select states. So it's not the end of abortion, but I do think it's a step in the right direction. I think it will save lives uh, in the long run. You know, uh, one of the statistics was that there is um, almost 3,000 abortions. At, at Prior to the Dobbs decision, there were 3,000 abortions in America every day, nearly 3,000. That's, that's a 9-11 every day for, for, for children, for babies. But one thing that I was reminded of is that in China, it's 10 times worse. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do around the world. China, 35,000 abortions every day. Uh, this, is, this is a modern-day holocaust that unfortunately goes overlooked uh, in a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, places in the world. And then we could approach this from an apologetic standpoint. Um, <clears throat> I came across an article, uh, and Alex, I'll do it off-air. I won't do it on-air. I'm not going to name the guy, but you know him. But he published a, an article here recently. Uh, in fact, on the day of the Dobbs decision when it came down, thousands of words long, so he'd been working on it for a while, basically advocating as a pro-choice Christian uh, the merits of abortion. Now, what was fascinating to me as I read his article was um, he recognizes as a pro-choice Christian that you can't win the battle on moral grounds. And he laments that it's often reduced. Abortion is reduced to a moral question. His whole thing is about the legislation of it and laws and, and everything like that. But even that begs the question, like, why do we have laws? Isn't it to secure the rights that we've been endowed with by our Creator? And one of those rights being life? But anyway, I, I do think there's opportunity here from an apologetic standpoint, um, with gentleness and respect, to confront the faulty thinking of even our uh, brothers and sisters who are on the other side of this question. Uh, and so I, we here, we, we waited a little over a week before we started addressing it on our Monday night and Thursday night broadcasts uh, that we do on YouTube with the Davis Park Church of Christ YouTube channel. And I approached it from the apologetic standpoint one night. The other minister on staff approached it from the pastoral standpoint. Uh, we did a couple few videos about it. So, But, um, I mean, it's it's not going away. But uh, again, I think it's a step in the right direction, and uh, there are opportunities here for us to expose the unfruitful works of darkness, brothers and sisters, and I do think that uh, abortion is a very dark thing. Uh, so yeah, there's, those are my thoughts, just off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, what about you, Alex? Any, any thoughts about the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll just say it again. I th never thought it would ever happen or that I'd ever see the day. It was kind of one of those uh, special, like, red buttons that uh, is kept in the uh, Republican uh, box, right? And so it's like the Republican candidate comes out, and they're running for office, and they pull out of this. They open, they carefully open this box, and they pull out of this box a shiny red button. And they say, if I, if I push this red button, uh, Roe v. Wade will be overturned, and uh, if you elect me, I will make sure that I push this red button. 
Uh, but I can't do it until I'm elected. And so I'm going to put the red button back in the box and close the box, carefully secure the box for the day in which I'm elected and I can push that button. And so they get the votes and they get in the office and then they never bring the box back out again until it's time for election time again. And then they carefully bring the special box out and they open it up and they say, do you remember this red button? I need more time to push this button. If you were to put me back in office, I could push this shiny red button and we could overturn Rovery. And so this was the uh, political um, special special promise made over the last you know 50 years for every Republican candidate running for every office ever. <laughs> and, so, and nothing ever happened. And, uh, and you had the same thing on like the Democratic side. Like their, their button was like, you know, they pull out their special box and they pull out this, this shiny blue button and they say, I have this shiny blue button. And if you elect me in the office, I will push the shiny blue button upon which all of our wars and, uh, and, and military intervention around the world will come to an end. And, uh, and there will be no more war. We will, we will pull the troops back, right? And so, uh, and then, but you have to elect me. And then, and then I'll push the button. And they carefully put the button back in the box. And they put the box away. And so you had your peace candidate, your, your anti-war you know, candidate. And, and this is a big, probably dominant platform run on by every Democratic candidate for every office in the last 50 years. And, so, and, and do they ever push the button? No, they don't. They don't ever push the button. And so it's always been a big political tool of manipulation. And so... Uh, that's why I thought I would never see it. I would never see the day. It just, it's not going to happen. And the other component to that, which uh, is mystifying, is that when Roe v. Wade came down, it came down within a conservative majority Supreme Court. So when it came down, it was a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. So that's why it was mystifying. It's just like, wait a second. It's like a conservative majority Supreme Court is not supposed to rule in favor of of you know this fundamental right to abort a baby it's like no that's so it's so weird so not only even if it was a good like legal case which obviously it wasn't like uh the the legal world by and large has lamented the 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 nonsensical nature of the entire ruling in the first place like it should have never happened legally that's why you can have like uh maybe in a more candid moment ruth bader ginsburg saying like it should have never like happened. Ro- Roe v. Wade should have never happened. She's like, it's not because she is pro-life. It's because uh, legally speaking, from from that perspective, like it doesn't make any legal sense. So, as mysterious and mystifying as it came into existence, it mysteriously and mystifying uh, just disappeared from existence. <laughs> so I was like, so I'm just left dumbfounded. It's just like. Uh, there was no logic for why it came in, and there really wasn't a whole lot of logic for why it came out. And so, but I'm glad it's not there anymore, I guess. So, I mean, of course I am, but like, I just don't understand how it, how it came to be in the first place and how, like, why now, why this time? Like, it just, you know, disappears. And so, uh, and then some people say, well, now we have a conservative majority on the on the justices. So, you know, Trump did a good job, put three two or three conservatives in there. How many did he appoint? He appointed three, right? Three Supreme Court justices? I think that's right. Amy Coney Barrett. uh, I can't think of that. Gorsuch. She's like... Right? Gorsuch was one of them. Yeah. Gorsuch and uh, another guy. Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh. Yeah, there you go. So three, right? So it's like, okay, you know, you know, Trump, Trump did it. He did the job. He got the conservative majority. It's like, but it's like, is that why it disappeared? Because it was also a conservative majority that Roe v. Wade came into existence through. So, um, but as mystifying as it is, I celebrate the fact that it is now gone. Uh, what, what was the day? Was it June 24th? Is that the day? Yep. June 24th, 2022. Yeah. A lot of people saying like that should be a, a new holiday. It should be celebrated in religious circles. I was uh, noticing that um, some of my Catholic friends were like, yeah, actually, this is, uh, you know, this is the day that we celebrate the, the sacred heart of Jesus, which uh, emphasizes, you know, the love of the love of Christ uh, for all of humanity. And 
then the uh, it was also the feast day of uh, saint john the baptist right so john the baptist the birth of john the baptist right and so i was like ah that's kind of cool that it happened like every year when uh people think of or celebrate the birth of john the baptist that'll be the same day that roe v wade was overturned so it's like ah yes because while john the baptist was unborn in elizabeth's womb he leaped for joy at the presence of his lord and that's what spurred the holy spirit to speak through elizabeth saying to mary uh blessed are you among women blessed is the fruit of your womb so uh that's pretty cool that's pretty cool that like that gets to be the part of the celebration every year on june 24th so um yeah, those are my thoughts. I think we should celebrate it. I think it's a little mystifying how it came into be and how it disappeared, but I'm glad that it's gone. And um, and you're right, the battle's not over. It's just like, this is it. What I enjoyed most was actually watching um, people just sort of squirm for a little bit, where it's like, it doesn't really matter what arguments you want to make now for either side. It's like, it's been overturned. And so that means like, you're not going to overturn what's been overturned. It's like, no, no, it's done. <laughs> so like, it's back to the states, but it's like permanently back to the states. Like this is no longer going to be constitutionally protected. Uh, so it's like, yeah, that's that's great. Like make all the arguments you want, squirm, squirm around in your little arguments. Uh, you know, because like the for me, the, there was a a relief of like it's just like oh, it's just like I could argue for my position but i don't have to argue for my position anymore it's like i just won on this level like my position is the winner <laughs> and so so go ahead and say whatever you want your apologetics mean nothing they will not turn around what has been turned around <laughs> so you're right though the battle is not over in the long run there are still things to be done at each state level and that's going really well in a lot of states right where lots of states yep. are moving to uh make abortion legal but then you got states like your state in California, us here in Minnesota. Although in Minnesota, I'm a little hopeful because now, you know, what becomes more important. What becomes more important is local elections, right? Yeah. Now local elections really could make a big difference. Life and death, right? It's like if you can get people who are pro-life in places of representative power, then yeah, you could get, you could get abortion, uh, turned around in your state so it's like yeah it's like local politics now mean something more important they were always important they pragmatically should be the most important but on this issue now it's just like oh i'm gonna have to start paying more attention as to who i can vote for in the uh, state capital and so uh i think that's good news for minnesota because minnesota has um Last time I checked, close to 50% of its population does consider itself religious in one, one shape or another. And most of those, 47 to 50%, are associated with either the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church. And uh, in the cities, it's mostly Catholic. Out in the country, it's mostly Lutheran. But uh, who, who you know, is the largest powerhouse of um, the pro pro-life movement it's just like this is the catholic church and so yeah that's good news that's good news we might actually be in a position where minnesota state legislature could uh be coming to play and get some folks elected to will overturn that in the in the state of minnesota so who knows lord willing that's right well uh I think that they were saying, who was it? It was one of the, it was uh, Thomas Clarence. Is that his name? Supreme Court Justice? Clarence Thomas. Clarence yeah. Thomas, right. Clarence Thomas was saying that this ruling, this overturning of Roe v. Wade may actually one day provide a route to overturn some other things that shouldn't have been done. Obergefell. Yeah, like constitutionally protected right to gay marriage right yeah the obergefell decision is that what that was called the obergefell yeah because yeah. um, that was back in 2012 is that right oh i forget the date but yeah it's um that was one of them there were there were a couple few that he mentioned in his uh his uh decision 
Um, but uh, yeah, Obergefell was the big one. So that might get kicked back to the States then if you have an overturning there, which uh, I thought sounded, you know, sounded hopeful, sounded hopeful. But you had a, because these issues come up, right? These issues come up and um, you were saying the issue of gay marriage came up in a Facebook group that you were a part of. And there was a question posed to you, you know, if you were invited to a gay wedding, would you go, you know, essentially? But it was more participatory than that. What was the scenario again, the hypothetical? Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's not the first time it's come up. I've I've had it uh, even here at the church about, uh, you know, the participating or even attending uh, a uh, same-sex um, wedding, same-sex marriage. Um, uh, and um, so... Uh, let's kick the scenario here. Suppose, um, uh, you know, and, and, and so this was, uh, you know, the, the context, of course, is uh, ministers and church leaders that, that we get asked this, these kinds of, of questions, these kinds of uh, scenarios. So it is rooted in, in uh, praxis and all that. So um, suppose a, a kid who was, uh, you know, part of the youth group, now grown up, uh, and uh, they they come to you and they ask you to walk them down the aisle where they can marry someone of the same sex. Would you do it? Uh, now you know in in Christendom in general, uh, you'll find a broad um, you'll find a broad spectrum there, and. You know that there will be any number of uh, replies to the question that are any particular length, right? People will justify and, and give reasons for why uh, they would do what they would do. But it really boils down to there's only two answers, two possible answers to the question of, of would you do it, yes or no, yes or no. And so that uh, there were um, Christians on either side of the answer didn't surprise me. There were those who say yes, there were those who say no. What surprises me is the justification for the yes answers. Um, and it was it was uh, a broad spectrum of possibilities. Um, the, the, the answer that got the most um, cited was love. You, you, you do it out of love. Love God, love others, uh, first and second greatest commandments. Um, Romans 14 was pulled to the table as well, that this is a, a disputable matter, and so the decision ought to be from faith or else it's sin. Um, if your conscience is clear, then by all means do it. But if, you know, you you would violate your conscience by doing it, then don't do it. First um, Corinthians 13 was offered. Love never fails, especially. Um the impact and the influence that you could have on this individual was cited. I mean, it, if you don't do this, it, it could traumatize the person. And they've, uh, you know, maybe they've been through a lot of trauma in their life, and you don't want to magnify that. But, um, but if you did it, you know, what, what a witness, right? That, that you're, you're showing them that you radically love them, even though, you know, you, you hold to the Scriptures. And maybe even, I don't know, in spite of, or regardless of your interpretation of the scriptures, uh, but uh, again, the, the 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 main the main uh, reason that's often marshaled is love. You know, lo- love would compel me to stand with them on this important day, uh, and so uh, that's that's a lot of the reasons that are given for the yes answer. So, I mean, I, I've I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> And I thought, you know what? Maybe just like a simple parallel might be instructive, right? So, Alex, let me let me kick you this scenario. You ready? Uh-huh. Suppose you have a nephew who is a thief, and he came to you asking you to drive the getaway car so that he could, <laughs> as the kids say, hit a lick, right? Which is rob a liquor store. That's that's how the kids say it these days. <laughs> <laughs> There's the scenario, Alex. Would you do it? 
Now, you process that. Let me okay. let me give you right. a little bit more here, right? So let's let's start plugging in all of the reasons that are marshaled for you know the the previous scenario. Well, you know, love God, love people, love never fails. So love would compel me to ride with him during this critical time <laughs> of his life, right? Uh, or Romans 14, right? If, if I can, with a clear conscience, drive the car, then do it, right? Mm-hmm. Or imagine the impact that you would have, could have on your nephew if you just you radically love him regardless of your interpretation of Scripture. And by the way, if you if you don't do that, if you don't ride with him, I mean, it could traumatize him. It could traumatize right? him. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Right. Every 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 reason is wrong, right? <laughs> In that scenario. Yeah. Uh, what you want me to kick him back? By all means. Okay. Well, to the to the first leg of the argument about uh, love, right? Love God. Love your neighbor. Love always wins. Uh, I would say that there is definitely a biblical priority when you see the two commandments it's never love your neighbor and then love god it's always love god and that's the first thing love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength there's there's a priority of commitment and loyalty first to god and then out of that comes the second commandment love your neighbor as yourself so when you love when you uh approve of something that god says is like wrong right god says it's sinful so if it's sinful it's because it's bad for you it's self-destructive and destructive to others around you it's spiritually destructive um it's bad for your soul then by uh participating in or approving of that destructive behavior you are flipping the greatest command upside down you are first loving your neighbor with all your heart mind soul and strength and then you're loving god after that out of your love for your neighbor you're loving god that's backwards that's not the way it works so what you do is you end up approving of things that are uh irreconcilable to a higher priority of loyalty to god and so when you approve of things that god says are wrong you are giving your loyalty first to the one you're approving of and then second to God. And then you're justifying it by saying it's because you love God that you're approving of this person. And so that would probably spin out into like a more nuanced debate about participation in this wedding and how that equates to approval of the behavior of same-sex sexual activity right same-sex marriage so that would be my first thing is that like that argument doesn't work because it's it's actually the backwards way it's not actually loving god first and loving your neighbor then it's actually loving your neighbor first and then loving god second because now you're approving of things that can't be reconciled with what god says is right and you're creating then thus this uh, cognitive dissonance that doesn't work so that would that would be my kickback on that one for the other one the romans 14 saying like you know, leave it up to your conscience. Romans 14 only works if it's a disputable issue. Uh, so you have to first presuppose what's disputable and what's not disputable. And so um, if it's not disputable that homosexual marriage or same-sex marriage and same-sex sexual activity, if it's if it's not disputable, like, that's always wrong. There's never a scenario where that could be right or permissible, then Romans 14 doesn't work. You can't apply it because Romans 14 only applies to disputable matters, matters where there may be a situation where this is wrong and there may be a situation where this is permissible. That's called a disputable matter. So you have to first go through the process of saying same-sex marriage and same-sex sexual activity is disputable. It's a disputable matter as to whether it's morally right or wrong in the eyes of God, sinful or not sinful. So it can't be just up to your conscience. Uh, First, it has to be up to like whether this is debatable or not, disputable or not. So that would be my kickback on that. And then that would like, you know, spin out into like, okay, well, let's let's make arguments for it being disputable or not disputable. But I would say it's that has to be done first before you apply the Romans 14 filter. And then what was the last one? It was uh, 
all the witness, right? Yeah. Being a, being a good witness and by not being a good witness and participating, then like you could be traumatizing this person. And so, um, I would say that that's hyperbole, right? That is like an over-exaggeration where, uh, what's really traumatizing this person is, uh, probably, you know, a series of experiences and, and events that have led them to embrace, uh, a same-sex relationship and to embrace same-sex attraction, to act on that and to commit same-sex sexual uh, activity, sexual intercourse, same-sex sexual intercourse. So that would be what's actually traumatizing. So it's a relabeling of things that's happening. It's like you're going to traumatize them by not walking them down the aisle to their same-sex wedding. She's like, well, I mean, there are going to be people who come to that wedding or don't come to that wedding for one reason or another. And, uh, whether, whether it's traumatizing or not is kind of up to the way you handle yourself. Like, are you going to crash the wedding? She's like, that could be traumatizing. I agree. <laughs> it's like, but nobody's <laughs> saying they're going to come in and crash the wedding, right? Nobody's saying they're going to come in and, uh, you know, wait for the, for the moment is if anybody has any you know, reason why these two should not be united. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Nobody says that anymore, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But even if they did, you know, it's not like you're saying, I'm not only not going to walk you down the aisle, I'm going to sneak in at that last second and be like, I do. I protest. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, how we, how do we handle ourselves? How do we talk? It's like, I don't think anybody is trying to be mean spirited. Uh, I think that's a caricature. It's a, it's a Christian caricature where, you know, you're pulling up video clips of, you know, some Westboro Baptist, you know, thing telling people they're going to hell or something. It's like, listen, that's that's not most Christians. Most Christians are are quite reasonable, quite peaceful, uh, uh, purpose pur- purposefully trying to to get along with those in their community. And so, by a Christian friend saying, "I'm not going to go to the the wedding," or "I'm not going to walk you down the wedding," it's not going to be traumatizing. It's like. That's hyperbole. That's an exaggeration. Your true witness isn't coming in a moment of participation that exalts and encourages a continued behavior that is ultimately destructive for themselves. Uh, Your true witness comes through the longevity of the relationship, not the moment, that, that one particular moment. It's just like, no, it's the whole trajectory of your relationship. Like... Who has this person known you to be over a long period of time? And through that's your witness. Your witness is not one particular moment or one particular action. It's the entire length. And the longer the relationship, the better. It's the entire length where you are this person's friend. You do love this person. But this person understands you don't approve of their same-sex marriage or their acting upon same-sex attraction. That's the witness, not the one, not the one moment of the wedding here. And maybe not going to wedding means that they don't want to be your friend anymore. So it's like, okay, it's like, that's their choice, right? doesn't mean they're traumatized over it. It's like, and maybe they'll change their mind and they'll still want to grab a cup of coffee with you someday. It's like, it's like you're assuming things about the future that have not happened. You don't know they're going to happen. And so that's, I think that's why it's a bad argument there for witness is because it's a misunderstanding of what witness actually is. Witness is the long-term outside perspective of the inside relationship that Christians have with each other and with the world. So those are the, those are my, that's my kicking back of the three legs of the argument there. (laughs) What about you? What do you, what do you think is the strongest argument for walking your gay friend down the aisle? And, and how would you, how would you handle the, that argument? Well, um, So, I would hope that this person would know me well enough to know that it would actually be futile in asking me the question. Yeah, that's true. In the first place. Which means it wouldn't be traumatizing. They would expect that answer. (laughs) They would expect it, yeah, because they they know where I stand on—both of my feet are firmly planted in Scripture on this, and categorically— Across Old Testament and New Testament, we see that homosexual practice, homosexual behavior, 
is categorically condemned. Um, and then, I mean, you know, the, as, I, as I think through it, marriage is a good gift from God, ordained by him, and designed to be expressed in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Um, and, and sex is a good gift in a similar uh, in a similar way, right? Ordained by God and to be expressed within the context of uh, well, marriage between a man and woman. Um, both of these young ladies are are guilty of taking those good gifts of God and distorting them um, in, instead of a a pure image of Christ in His church. Now we have a distorted image. Uh, that's that's not a, a, an image. It's not uh, imaging Christ and His Bride. It's something completely other than that. And um, they are are perverting the sexual relationship into unnatural expression of disordered and fleshly passions that are rooted in in lusts. And this is what humans in rebellion do: is they take the good gifts of their Creator and they invent ways of doing evil. And then they try to seduce believers to help them carry out their unholy inventions, right? And to give affirmation or approval of those things, which according to the righteous decree of God, they deserve death. This is Romans one thirty-two, by the way. This is actually uh, a, a really good point because uh, it's not just toleration that people are asking for, right? People are not asking for toleration of abortion. People are not asking for toleration of same-sex marriage. They're asking for celebration, public, wide celebration of these things. Celebrate abortion. Celebrate same-sex marriage. Uh, and so that's that's a little different, right? They're not, uh, when you see the, the media portraying this debate, and uh, it's not it's not enough for some people to be tolerated, right? They should be like, okay, I respect you if you don't you know, if it doesn't line with your principles to be at my wedding, it's like that's that's one group, right? Where they toleration is enough for them. They respect the other side's position and debate. But there's this other side that gets most of the media coverage, and this is the side that says, no, no, we're going to protest and actively work until this is not just a tolerated thing, but a publicly uh, celebrated thing and seen as a virtuous thing. Like, this is so brave. This is so courageous. This is so, what beauty, what strength, what love, all of that thing. They want it to be the, uh, they want to, they want to baptize it and sanctify it and glorify it. That's, that's the thing. That's a good distinction. These are the sacraments of, uh, the religion of secularism and, and humanism. Absolutely. Um, so having established all that, there is hope, right? And this is the hope that's held out by the gospel. Uh, Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so I hope now, um, diligent listeners, you can see my parallel was deliberate because right after men who practice homosexuality, homosexual offenders, you have thieves who are said not to inherit the eternal uh, kingdom, the, the kingdom of God. Uh, and so that, that whole thought experiment is deliberate. And, and unrepentant sinners, they don't inherit the kingdom of God, but sinners... Who are washed in the blood of Christ, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, justified by God in Christ, we do inherit the kingdom. And and the hope, that hope of the gospel, will unfortunately escape these young women and also young men in a similar uh, circumstance. And it's because Christians, uh, certain Christians, are abandoning their God-given calling to expose the unfruitful works of darkness with gentleness and respect. Instead, they affirm and, and they approve and, and celebrate, as you talked about, Alex, the, the rebellion and, and the sin uh, that is uh, uh, that, that these folks are, are engaging in. And so um, there is one more leg, Alex, to the argument here. Are you ready for it? 
Well, and just a, just a quick note for the audience. If Nick's answer seemed uh, a little, uh, the audio seemed a little off, we had some technical difficulties. And so uh, Nick dropped out and then he came back in and so we spliced it back together. So if it sounded strange, then that's why. But what's the last leg? Of course, I am a strange guy, so. <laughs> Stranger Things. We should talk about Stranger Things after this. <laughs> I've only seen season one. I haven't seen all four seasons, so. What? Yeah, uh, I know. I'm, I'm far Nick. behind. Okay. The last leg is this. What if she was your daughter? Ah, oh. See that? Pulling on the heartstring there. What if she was your daughter? You know? M. Night Shyamalan me. He turned it around at the end. <laughs> you know, so so clearly, some if someone is family, that automatically justifies their behavior and we should condone it right i mean that's that's how we do it in my house alex i don't know about how they do it in flood house but family you get a free pass on anything you do apparently um, and by the way that's why i used the nephew in my example that's that's a relative right right so um I thought of another question though in reply lucky lucky for you nick you don't have any daughters so that's true that's true. Yeah. But you do, Alex. So what if, yeah, what if this, what if she was your daughter? So I, what I, if this was my daughter? I turned it even, so I amplified it. You ready for my question and yeah. in reply? Okay. What if they were your daughters? That is, what if your daughter asked you to walk her down the aisle so she could marry your other daughter, which is her sister? Would Isn't you do that it? Illegal? Would you do it? Look, we're only a matter, it's, Polygamy and incest and all that—that's just that's we're going to sweep that up eventually in the legislative. We're, that's that's cleanup that needs to be done yet, right? I mean, pedophilia is going to be part of the cleanup, right? You have all these other perversions that are going to be caught up eventually, but legality aside, would you do it? And if not, why not? By what standard? Uh, I mean, same answers, right? Like as before. And by the uh, way. So, so in, in the discussion, then, there are those of us who are being consistent in refusing to participate in all of them, right? All the scenarios. Whereas there are others, apparently, who want to pick and choose um, among the aforementioned scenarios. Yeah, and I mean, if it's my daughter or daughters, which would be even more messed up, obviously, um, the only difference is that I would have some serious reflection that i would be doing uh in my own in my own life mm. it's just like you know sometimes uh behavior acted out by a woman is indicative of this is not all the time but sometimes it's indicative of that which was lacking in her relationship with her father and so I would have to take a good long look and reflection upon where I perhaps really dropped the ball as dad to this girl. And so doesn't mean that's what happened in every case of, you know, every woman who married another woman. It was just like, but that's a legitimate avenue that, like, if you're going to be honest, you need to look at that and just be like, where... Where did I play a role here where I left this little girl's heart uh, damaged and afraid of relationships with other men? Um, and, you know, could have been other things, but that's that's a possible reality that you have to confront. Should be like, where where did I maybe drop the ball as dad? Uh, the The self-confidence, I think, that a girl has or that a woman has, right? Uh, the self-confidence and assurance of love and security that a woman has inside, I think, comes from the little girl who received those things from her dad. And so when she doesn't, she goes searching for them. And where she finds them are often bad places. So that's that would be the difference. It'd be like that's that's where it gets heavier. It's just like, hmm, yeah, I gotta gotta point the finger back to myself in that one. 
my issue, of course, is with the subjectivity of that whole argument, right? Um, what if she were your daughter? As if, number one, you know, the, the, the rightness or the wrongness of a thing is determined by sentimentality uh, or familiar relationship. I mean, that's, that's, that's not how we determine the morality of a thing and um, totally leaves off, you know, again, the, the foundation for this whole discussion, uh, which is uh, what I believe is the clear revelation of Scripture. So, but uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's what, uh, that's what's out there. Yep. So, I think you said you're a strange guy, and I want to talk about stranger things. <laughs> we always, in our after hours, I think this has become a, a pretty typical pattern, we always end on, what are you reading? What are you watching? Nick, what are you reading? What are you watching? Uh, let's see. I'm reading, I'm reading John Owen right now, good uh, English Puritan from back in the day, Communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, a classic work on the Trinity uh, in Christian faith and practice. Uh, in addition, I'm reading uh, Stephen King's The Institute. It's one of his newer books. Uh-huh. I'm a big Stephen King fan. What's that one about? Uh, kids. Kids. Well, he's got. He writes a lot about kids. <laughs> There's usually kids involved. Um, kids are abducted from their homes and taken to this uh, shady location ran by a cabal of um, doctors and nurses. Uh, And I should say that they're psychically gifted children. That's another common theme in Stephen King's writings. Mm. Like Stranger Things. Kind of like Stranger Things. That's right. (laughs) And... um, why are and they're being experimented on? These kids are why for what purpose? Don't know yet. TBD. But um, uh, I'm reading that and and then I just uh, picked up um, uh, what is it? We the fallen people. We the fallen people, which is uh, an exploration of the founding fathers' anthropological notions, what they thought about humans, humanity, people. Um, and and how that informed how they wrote the Constitution. Very interesting. Yeah, it is very what, interesting. So that's what you're reading. You're a big reader. What are you watching? Uh, Any good movies? Any good shows? Yeah, let's see. Um, I I caught up on the uh, TV show Homeland. I watched the first like five seasons years ago. Didn't come back to it, and and now I finished the the last three seasons of Homeland. What's that? What's that about? Well, it, originally it was about um, uh, the the premise was imagine a soldier who was kidnapped by uh, Al Qaeda or the Taliban, it's, you know, Middle East ter- terrorists, and then made into a sleeper cell, who comes back home and is welcomed and received as this great hero. But he's actually, you know, uh, like a practicing Muslim in secret. And, um, yeah, he's... And so you have the CIA lady, Carrie Matheson is her name in the show, and she's got to track down and figure out how to stop this guy. And number one, is he actually a sleeper cell? Number two, how do you stop him? And Anyway, that was like the first three seasons. And then after that, it was all CIA, Middle East, stop the terrorists. And, and then the last few seasons, it was fascinating and I've seen this in a number of shows. Uh, Homeland was one. There was a show. I never watched it, but it was Madam Secretary, which I believe was about uh, a woman becoming president. And then um, House of Cards did the same thing, where um, they they had the, uh, the dude's wife, uh, Frank Underwood, I believe was his name. His wife became the president. And they, they all came out around the same time, like around... 2015, 2016, and as you will recall, Alex, 2016, there was a a presidential election. And it was kind of a foregone conclusion that it would be one Hillary Clinton who would win the presidency. 
Well, spoiler alert, she didn't. Donald Trump did. <laughs> but all these shows were like were they foretelling. I know. They were they were prepping the American people as it were. And so massaging the psyche. That's right. You season 6 and 7, um you had the the female president uh, of Homeland uh, in in the Homeland show and she um she starts off very much like the Hillary Clinton. What was fascinating, the last like 30 seconds of that sixth season, she took on the Donald Trump persona, which I thought was crazy because those aired after the election. And now you have this kind of, you know, I don't know, despotic type of, uh, you know, presidency that takes place. And it was, the wheels kind of came off after that. I I finished the the whole series, but... It wasn't great after that. Yeah. I didn't, it was called Homeland. Wasn't Hillary the Secretary of Homeland Security? She was Secretary of State. Oh, Secretary of State. And that's why I think Madam Secretary was, you know, that was the transition, right? She would go move from Secretary of State to Presidency. I think is how that was supposed to work, but didn't work out that way. Um, uh-huh. Yep, yep. I also Very watched a, a show um, called... Um, under the Banner of Heaven, which was a true crime story starring Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield. <laughs> so Spider-Man is living in Utah. Spider-Man? Huh? You mean the amazing Spider-Man? That's right, the amazing Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield. Spider- Spider-Man. Spider-Man is living in Utah as a Mormon. <laughs> that was goofy. Um, but no, he's, he's this Mormon detective, um, and there's been a murder of... Uh, uh, a woman and her 18-month-old child, and he's got to figure out who did it. And um, it, it's based on a true story that took place back in the 80s, um, and it had to do with uh, uh, one family, the Lafferty family, uh, and a couple few of the brothers ended up uh, departing kind of the mainstream Mormonism and became fundamental Latter-day Saints. And... Uh, and that had all kinds of repercussions, including, spoiler alert, uh, they murder their sister-in-law. So, yeah, you know, wow. something, something uplifting, you know, just something, wow. <laughs> something bright and cheery. But uh, Okay. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So, anyway, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm what I've been watching here lately. Uh what about you, Alex? What have you Stranger Things. Tell us about Stranger Things. <laughs> and also what you're reading. Uh well book wise, you know, I'm more into reading like snippets of things, right? So I like articles, I like um papers. Um I don't read a whole lot of like just books from front to front to back. Like I like uh, finding things in books. And so there's a couple of books that I seem to keep going back to, which is like, I really want to sit down and read this from front to back. Cause I know a lot about this book now. And like, I can quote lines from this book, but I don't, I've never actually sat down and read it from front to back. So one of those is called, uh, the, uh, the hero with a thousand faces by Joseph Campbell, classic work. I know a lot about it. I've seen even shows about it, but, uh, uh, what was the one? There's a Netflix show called Of Myths and Monsters, I think. Oh, yeah. And it uh, and they had a big, you know, series on how uh, Joseph Campbell really, you know, recognized that structure, the hero's journey that takes place in so many ancient stories. And then how, you know, you see that taking place like in modern day movies and stuff, successful, majorly successful stories like Star Wars, right? And, uh, so yeah. And then there's another one too that like, you know, I quote from, I reference, but I've never read from front to back. So I just, I just know things about it and things that are in it. And that's the Silmarillion by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. It's like the world, the world building, like background to, uh, the Lord of the Rings story. And, um, oh, speaking of Star Wars, actually, uh, my son and I, uh, this year, finished going through the new uh star wars high republic comics and so there's like lots of spinoffs right but there's like the main like the main uh story that's like just the high republic and then they have other ones that are like high republic like subtitle blah 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 it's like but 
the actual just High Republic story, the main storyline. I think it's like 15 comics long. And so we, we went through and we read all 15 of those, collected those along the way as they came out. Pretty cool. Super cool. Set 300 years before the Skywalker saga. Mm. And will probably be the basis for the next trilogy uh, that comes out in the future. Speaking of Star Wars, Kenobi, I finished that. Kenobi, yeah, that's right. I finished it too. A lot of people love it or hate it. I loved it. That was great. Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi is my favorite character probably in the Star Wars uh, franchise. What about you? What do you think? It had its moments, um, high points that I appreciated. Um, I understand what they were doing. They're bridging the gap from the end of the prequel trilogy to the original trilogy. Right. And so, you know, they're trying to fill in, you know, plot holes or whatever, you know, how did he know this? Why did he say that type thing? Yeah. Um, how did Leia know to contact him and to ask him for help? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there were other things where I thought they were unnecessary. Like, there's a, there's a key aspect of the final episode. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but I just thought the whole thing was unnecessary. Like, why is this character doing this? And and I think that maybe opened plot holes there too. But um, but uh, for sure, o- overall, I I I enjoyed it. Um, my boys are now working through what they do with Darth Vader. I mean, at the end of Rogue One, you see Vader be Vader, but dude, he was Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, in this show. Yeah. yeah, that's right. They let Vader be Vader. You know, that's this is this is why he's terrifying. That's right. This is how powerful he really is. Oh man, super overpowered. Yeah, and they awesome. they show it. They put it on display, which is great. Awesome. Yep. Um, I agree. Yeah, I really liked it. Not perfect, you know. Sure. Uh, it it successfully bridged the gap to some things, not so much on others. Mm. And then there was a few extra, you know, things uh, within the storyline that like. We're just like, meh, you know, you don't take it or leave it. Don't really need that. But still, you know, still, I think overall impressed. I think we're just getting spoiled. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like we are, we are just getting spoiled as fans. It's just like our standards of perfection are getting higher and higher. And so, uh, you know, I think if something like this had come out um, in the 90s, we would have been like, you know, mind blown, right? This is the greatest thing ever created. It's just like, it's like, no, no, we, we are getting more accustomed to like high quality storyline, high quality production. Um, and I mean, like we're not even, we don't have to wait for more movies to come out. They're giving us TV series now, like really good TV series. And so, Hmm. yeah, we're just spoiled. We're, (laughs) but I, I think it's good. I think it's good. Uh, Yeah shows obviously we watched stranger things you know wouldn't recommend it to just everyone like it is it is quite violent um might not be great for every audience member out there so you know just do your own do your own uh research on that uh, apply your own uh video filters uh, and you can there are video filters out there uh vidangel really like vidangel they do a great job at filtering stuff that you can stream highly recommend that but yeah season four i think season four is the best thing since season one so uh, <laughs> you know i'd heard that seasons two and three were kind of duds so i that's why i kind of that's part of why i put it on the shelf was like eh, i got other stuff to watch no no that's true like i think season two uh I just don't really remember anything about it, which tells you how good it was, right? Right, yeah. And season three had a couple of really powerful scenes for me that I uh, that I like. And so I like season three better than season two. Uh, but season four was really great because it was like they were able to kind of reboot without rebooting. And so, you know, you get a lot of backstory, um, but the main story is still progressing. Uh you get different locations, right? You're not just in the same town every time. So I think four uh, overall was a success. It was a success. Um, yeah, and I don't know how much more to say about it. Don't want to spoil it for anybody. <laughs> but yeah, best thing since season one, for sure. For sure. Well, Nick, we are an hour, 40 minutes 
into after hours six. We just kept talking. We didn't even pay attention. A lot to, to catch the, up on. To the clock. So interesting things. Uh, not sure if anybody's still listening right now at this point, but <laughs> <laughs> they may have checked out at 45 minutes. I don't know. I don't know. But I was interested. I, I enjoyed what you had to say, Nick. Thanks for joining Thanks for joining me in this conversation, this after-hours conversation. Feelings are mutual as well, my friend. That's right. So if anybody wants to uh, support the podcast, how can they help us? How can they encourage us? Well, let's see. i got to pull that from my memory data bank here. You can uh, locate us in a variety of different places, streaming platforms, especially uh, Apple Podcast, uh, Google Music, uh, and uh, what's uh, uh, Audible? We're on Audible as well, and other places. And you can, in places you can, leave a review, leave stars. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. Um, and uh, share that on social media if you are so inclined to do so. Also, uh, you can uh, text in questions if you have questions for us. And we've done a QA uh, session before, we'll do another one if we get enough questions. The Swordplay text line is 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Or you can email your question to... Swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Well, thank you, diligent listener, for hopping in, catching up on things with us. We appreciate your uh, continued listenership, if that's a word. And we will catch you next time on another episode of Swordplay, your double-edged perspective on Scripture.